This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, December 1st. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, CPW investigates San Miguel poaching, behavioral health solutions, funds mental health support, Telluride Young People's Theater invites you to be their guest, and a mountain weather forecast. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is investigating a number of poaching incidents in San Miguel County. Poaching occurs when uh, people kill uh, an animal either out of season, not in the unit they have a license for, um, or killing an animal and not uh, taking the meat. That's John Livingston, public information officer for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. In this These instances, um, these animals were all shot and left there to die, um, which uh, is a pretty egregious violation of Colorado's law surrounding hunting and fishing. According to Livingston, the poaching took place in Game Management Unit 70 between October 30th and November 15th. In total, eight animals were found killed, a mix of deer and elk. We had uh, three incidents on October 30th in Dry Creek Basin, uh, where uh, a small buck had been shot, and then we found another small buck that would have been shot less than a mile away. Um, you know, in uh, another incident in that same Dry Creek Basin, again on November 6th, of another mule buck that had been shot and left there uh, in Dry Creek Basin. And then again, while we were investigating that case on November 6th, we got the call from hunters about two bull elk that had been shot and left in the Dan Noble State Wildlife Area, about 14 miles southwest of Norwood. And uh, again, got another call on November 17th about another spike bull and uh, a cow elk uh, as well. Uh, two cow elk that had been shot and left there. Livingston notes the cases are still under investigation and CPW has not determined if they are connected. Poaching a big game animal in Colorado is a felony. Conviction could include fines and jail time. In addition to being illegal, Livingston adds poaching robs the public from what makes Colorado special, its natural resources and wildlife. You know, everybody holds, um, you know, different wildlife values. uh, But, you know, here in Colorado, it's part of what makes living here and recreating here so special is is being surrounded by these animals. But not only that, it robs from legitimate sports uh, persons. You know, um, know, hunter dollars go toward a lot of wildlife conservation and uh, hunters are, are concerned about these Kind of cases. He notes it was hunters who called in the initial reports of poaching. Uh, you know, for hunters, uh, you know, they're as concerned about it as we are and want to, you know, really get to the bottom of this and, and find ways to stop this, especially, you know, when you're seeing an animal killed, uh, you know, from somebody who's just uh, maybe a little bloodthirsty out there and, and, you know, not harvesting that meat. That's something that hunters, you know, really um, hold in high regard as being able to use that animal and take every edible portion of that and, and put it to use. And when you see something like that, that just doesn't rise to the level of the ethics that, that hunters CPW is looking for information from the public on the poaching incidents. Individuals can provide information anonymously by contacting Operation Game Thief at game.thief at state.co.us. The old saying goes that money can't buy happiness, but in terms of improving mental health outcomes, some funding can go a long way. In our region, a major source of mental health funding comes from San Miguel Behavioral Health Solutions. KOTO's Gavin McGough has more on how this initiative has used its funds in the past year. 
The Collaborative for San Miguel Behavioral Health Solutions, or BHS, dates back to 2018, when the county voted to raise a tax in order to fund regional mental health support. Behavioral health encompasses psychiatric services, crisis prevention, substance abuse prevention, and other forms of therapy and counseling. Programs manager for BHS, Corrine Cavender, reports that in 2022, BHS has funded therapy sessions for many area individuals. And then to date, 144 individuals have been helped um, and about $230,000 have been given to providers. Cavender was presenting on BHS's work to the Board of County Commissioners. In the past, BHS used a Good Neighbors Fund to connect individuals with therapists. This year, however, they switched to a new model called the Behavioral Health Fund. Cavender says the new approach has reduced barriers. We were using the Good Neighbor Fund to help people pay for therapy sessions. And then the Behavioral Health Solutions panel decided that it kind of needed a less restrictive model. Not sure if all of you know, but the Good Neighbor Fund application is pretty tedious. And there's a lot of proof that you have to show um, for the for the funds that you're receiving. And we really didn't want to have any barriers there. So it made the application a lot easier um, and didn't have a lot of guardrails in for this first year. Members of BHS are appointed by the county commissioners. BHS then distributes funds to the Tri-County Health Network to run many of their programs. Cavender explains the responsibilities of Tri-County Health. Um, So processing those applications, helping determine copay amounts, Communicating with providers, which I think is kind of one of the biggest, um, most important things that P handles, making sure that the therapists are Colorado licensed, um, and then just managing invoices and all of that kind of financial tracking. BHS also funds a behavioral health care coordinator. Cavender explains the duties of that position. Um, but this person is employed by Tri-County Health Network and provides really just a big support system through the behavioral health system in San Miguel County, making sure that um, higher needs clients are able to access all that's there. A lot of us know there um, we do have resources and a lot of people just don't know how to access them. So this person really helps connect our community members to resources and agencies that are available. County Commissioner Hillary Cooper had questions about how BHS supports individuals with substance use disorders, as well as individuals held in the county jail. Cavender says the healthcare coordinator is charged with those roles. Biggest support that the BHS can offer is that behavioral health care coordinator. So it's not necessarily increasing substance use treatment and substance use programs, but it's having that person be able to connect with people who are leaving the jail system or criminal justice system or on probation or whatever it might be and helping them connect to current supports. Um, But I think there's um, there's a lot of things that can be done to start programs or collaborate or things like that to increase actual programs. Cooper says supporting inmates and ex-inmates should be a priority. That's a priority for me to to get the behavioral health and especially substance use disorder continuum of care in a as formal of a partnership as possible with our criminal justice system, which is not just the jail, it's the courts as well. BHS also distributes hundreds of thousands of dollars across other area organizations, including the Uncompagre Medical Center, the Lone Cone Library, area schools, and initiatives to reduce stigma around mental health. 
As part of the presentation, Cavender says BHS is looking forward towards the 2023 budget year. On a dark and stormy night, in the depths of the French countryside, a prince is cursed. A very spoiled, um, black-hearted prince who has a curse put over his castle and all those who inhabit it um, by an enchantress because of how wicked his heart really is. And he has to learn to love and to love someone hard enough to be loved in return. And if he does not do that by the time this enchanted rose that she gives him has completely wilted, then his castle will be doomed for all of eternity. That's Leah Heidenreich, artistic director of Telluride's Young People's Theater. Despite a spooky premise, the story she's telling isn't a tragedy. It's a love story. This weekend, YPT is bringing the classic tale of Beauty and the Beast to the Sheridan Opera House. Tale as old as time. True as it can be. Using the much-beloved music from the Disney movie, with a few added songs from the Broadway cast, the performance will share the story of Belle, a smart, go-getter young woman who becomes imprisoned and then falls in love with the Beast Prince. But Heidenreich notes, it's not all flowers and sunshine. Be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test. This is probably the hardest musical I've done with this age group, like ever. Beauty and the Beast, although, you know, we think little girls and princesses, it's very advanced. The music is really difficult. Um, the staging is really difficult. The costumes are really difficult. I mean, it's not its not a simple production by any means. And so it's been a really good challenge for these kids. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We our guest, be our the production will feature 28 young thespians, grades 6 to 8, and Heidenreich adds you don't need to be related to a cast member to enjoy the show. It's just such a nostalgic show. I mean, everyone knows it. Everyone knows the music. Everyone loves the story. It's sweet. It's such an uplifting story. Um, it's such a great escape from our current world because um, it just kind of, you know, transports you into this really lovely, just fairy tale. And you're going to be singing. You'll cry. It's so sweet. The costumes are amazing. Amy Bolte has created a beautiful set. It's just such a fun night at the theater, and it's a great way to support our community. Beauty and the Beast Jr. will take place at the Sheridan Opera House Friday, December 2nd through Sunday, December 4th at 6 p.m. Tickets are available at SheridanOperaHouse.com. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the After the cupboard with you now, Chip. It's past your bedtime. Good night, love.
The Chandala in Mountain Village is still down due to mechanical issues. And in order to alleviate commuter congestion, Mountain Village is adding additional bus service between the meadows and the village core, with stops at Big Billy's, Market Plaza, Blue Mesa, and Centrum Bus Stop. Mountain Village is adding buses between 7 and 9 a.m. and 4 and 6 p.m., beginning Friday, December 2nd, and running until the Chandala reopens. Full bus schedules are posted at townofmountainvillage.com and at the bus stops. As the temperature drops in San Miguel County, things are getting hot at the World Cup in Qatar. After defeating Iran 1-0, the U.S. men's soccer team is officially in the knockout round of 16 at the World Cup. The U.S. is playing the Netherlands this Saturday, December 3rd at 8 a.m. Telluride time, and the Wilkinson Public Library is making sure everyone has a seat in the stadium. The library will host a viewing party of the match starting at 8 a.m. on Saturday. There will be coffee and donuts. Coloradans will begin paying into a new program soon that will provide paid leave for workers. The Family and Medical Leave Insurance Program will help cover wages if an employee can't work because they have to take care of themselves or their family. Tracy Marshall, one of the program's directors, says it will also make it easier for employers to provide paid leave. This now is really setting a new floor of benefits for all employees across Colorado to have access to a paid leave benefit in a way that's affordable and in a way that's not complex for their employers to be able to navigate the system for them. Voters approved the program in 2020. In January, employees will start paying into it through a deduction from their paychecks of less than half a percent. Employers will pay into it quarterly starting in April. The program's benefits will be available beginning 2024. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold announced a mandatory recount on Wednesday in the race for Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports the recount is not likely to change the results. Colorado election law requires a recount if the winning candidate is ahead by half a percent or less. In the 3rd District, incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert claimed victory last month with a lead of just a few hundred votes. Her opponent, Democrat Adam Frisch, conceded the race and says the recount likely won't change things. It'd be disingenuous and unethical for us or any other group to continue to raise false hope and encourage fundraising for a recount. Colorado elections are safe, accurate, and secure. Please save your money for your groceries, your rent, your children, and for other important causes and organizations. Ahead of the election, Boebert was expected to win easily. Instead, the race was one of the closest in the country. The recount will be completed by December 13th. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. The Colorado River's foundational legal document turned 100 years old in November. The agreement among seven western states was groundbreaking for its time. But as KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, it continues to contribute to the southwest's water crisis. Eric Kuhn walks along a gravel path above the Colorado River in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The river below is turbid and choppy as it winds its way through town past Hot Springs Resorts and Whitewater Outfitters. Here we are about a uh, whole 150 miles downstream of the headwaters of the Colorado River. Kuhn is the former head of the Colorado River District, a water agency based on the state's western slope. 
He's the co-author of the book Science Be Damned, a detailed examination of how the river's foundational agreement, the Colorado River Compact, came together a century ago. When I think of rivers, I think of, well, where's, where's the water coming from and where's it going? And what's happened to this river over the last 100 years? In the 19-teens, European settlers were moving into some of the most arid reaches of the country. The Southwest was rapidly developing. But one thing was missing, a stable water supply. The river's flows were extreme, transitioning quickly from flood to drought. Kuhn says fledgling western states saw the river as a problem to solve. We needed to control nature. We needed to uh, figure out a way to make this river an, an, a, from a menace to a natural resource. That mentality is what brought leaders from those states and the federal government to Santa Fe in 1922 to hammer out the agreement. It divided up the river's water and promised the states a fixed amount to use. Kuhn says the negotiators chose political expediency over science. If we, everyone agrees that there's enough water to meet all our needs, dividing it up is going to be very easy. If there's not enough water, then it's going to create complications. We're 100 years later, and obviously our priorities are different than the priorities of the people who existed at that time. Kathy Jacobs is a water policy professor at the University of Arizona. The priority then was irrigation water for the Southwest's small farms. They weren't thinking of what a future Phoenix metro area might need, or how their decisions would affect the Grand Canyon's ecosystems. I don't think that it's particularly flexible, and we're in a situation where flexibility will probably be key. And that inflexibility is still being felt today, Jacobs says. Because more water exists on paper than in the river, its biggest reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, continue to decline to record lows. For Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, the compact also represents how indigenous people have been excluded from river management over time. Water for many tribes, it's not a commodity. It's something sacred. It's something that's integral to not just human life, but the broader community and environmental well-being. Collectively, tribes hold rights to more than 20% of the river's water, but only recently have calls for a tribal seat at the negotiating table been seriously considered by the states and the federal government. That's been a shift in the last, really, I think, five years of recognizing tribal interests, their legal rights, and beyond that, that tribes can be a part of problem solving. So with all of its flaws, why would anyone want to keep using the compact? Well, Kevin Wheeler, a river management fellow at the University of Oxford in the UK, says more water leaders are choosing to ignore some of the compact's math. Newer agreements show some willingness to cut back on overall water use voluntarily. Even though no individual state wants to take the hit, They all recognize the need to take the hit together. And what the compact serves as now, he says, is a way to keep all of the users returning to the negotiating table. What's often been said is we're not going to get rid of it, but we may have to bend the hell out of it to make it work. And figure out a way to bend it before the whole system breaks. I'm Luke Runyon in Grand Junction, Colorado. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 30% chance of snow showers tonight with cloudy skies and a low in the mid-20s. 
Winds could gust as high as 50 miles per hour. Friday calls for snow showers with a high around 30 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 50 miles per hour with 1 to 3 inches of snow accumulation possible. Friday night expect increasing clouds with a low around 20 degrees. Saturday there's a 40% chance of snow showers with a high near 40 during the day and a low around 30 degrees at night. This has been the news for Thursday, December 1st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.